pastor's message this morning is entitled, The Grace Between Election and Hardening. The uh, reference is Romans chapter 11, verses 6 through 10. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which it seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it. And the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David said, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow their back always. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, it's a fearful thing to hear uh, the scriptures and, and see history in the consistency and the accuracy of the way that scripture describes the nation of Israel here. And it's a fearful thing to hear these words. Lord, be merciful to us. We, we call upon you, Lord, not to accept us because we have earned your acceptance, not at all, but to be merciful wholly to us, to bestow upon us, Lord, the grace that comes through the redemption in Christ Jesus. Lord, we know that it's only through him we stand. So I pray that we would realize the weight of what it is not to stand in that grace and how severe and how awful it is and how righteous it is at the same time. Be exalted this morning, Lord, in us that we would see that our salvation is all of grace and nothing of our own merit and so that you'd be glorified, holy, not only with the expression of our faith, Lord, internally, but also with our mouths as we proclaim to God alone be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the clearest and definite proofs that God's word has not failed, indeed that God's word is true, down to this very day, is that there remains a remnant of Israel. And this is because within the people of God, the people of Israel, as he described them, God's people in verse 1, he has chosen within that group those whom he foreknew and therefore kept for himself a remnant. These were, as he says in verse 5, chosen by grace. Those within the totality of Israel that he reserved for himself. Paul says that he himself is exhibit A as he begins this chapter. Look at me, I'm an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. And not only is Paul a good exhibit when it comes to him being a true Jew, 
He is a good exhibit of what we'll find today. He's a good uh, example of that because what he's going to teach today so clearly is what comes between this standing of the remnant of Israel and those in the majority who are hardened. And there's only one explanation that Paul gives, and that that is, it's the grace of God. That's the difference. I've entitled this sermon, I don't usually give much credence to titles and I don't talk about them much. This is more of a confession. The grace between election and hardening, as I was thinking about these two portions that Paul connects with verse 6. I thought about an old song, it's old now, I remember listening to it in the year 2000 and 2000, actually 2001, and the reason why I think it stands out to me, you don't usually recognize songs with a date usually, but that was the year that the trade centers were hit, and I remember watching that happen, and I remember listening to this song around the same time, and it was a song called The Space Between by Dave Matthews. Not a Christian band by any means, and, uh, but I always wondered, what does it mean, the space between? Well, I still don't know what he meant by that, but I thought, I'll use that same idea, because here we see there's, in the space between remnant, that is salvation, and hardening, which is judgment, which is wrath, which is eternal damnation, there's something between that is the explanation to why there's a remnant and why there's not. On the other end, everyone is, is not saved. There's one explanation for that. And it's verse 5, describes it this way. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But before we see how Paul connects that with what comes after, that is the judicial hardening of Israel, we're going to skip verse 6 and we're going to come back to it because I think it helps to see in more detail where he goes when, and then come back to verse 6. Now, you see that I'm going out of order. Verse 6 is sort of a parenthesis. I mean, it's there for a reason, but it's an explanatory passage that is explaining the difference, as I said, from the first five verses to now what we see through verse 7 with regards to Israel. Verse 7 and in this first point, you could say God's judicial hardening of Israel. And what do I mean by judicial? I mean that when we say that God judicially hardens somebody, or say Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9, in Exodus as well is where we find that narrative. But when we say that somebody is judicially hardened by God, we mean that he has seen them in their sin and he has chosen not to re- relieve them or to save them out of their sin. In other words, he gives them over to it. You could even go to Romans 1 and the reprobation that we read there. This is, in a sense, somewhat of a hardening idea that God sees that they want their sin, and the way that they are hardened is that God gives them over to it. He lets them have what they want. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, obtain what it was seeking, The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day, 
And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, if you were paying attention last two weeks ago, if you're following along where we are, these verses are a drastic contrast to the remnant passages in the first five verses. But they indeed correspond with what Paul has already argued for in several places in chapters 9 through 10 in regards to Israel. Back in chapter 9, verse 6, and we'll read through verse 8, he said, For not all are descended from Israel, who are descended from Israel, belong to Israel. There is a true people of God in Israel, and there is a people that belong to this outward covenant people, this this progeny of Abraham who are not, as it were, the true Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so here, what we read is there's a true Israel, and there is an Israel only by virtue of how they relate physically to Abraham. And that We might think, if we were just to read there, well, the true Israel's got to be much bigger. But what we've learned, actually from chapter 9 and a little bit in chapter 10 and now in chapter 11, very explicitly, is that the large part or the, the, the large component of the Israel that is not the true Israel, those are the, the ones who are in unbelief. The remnant is that true Israel, this small portion, this this portion that has been distinguished by grace. And then again in chapter 9, verse 31 and 32, but that Israel, that details this Israel who is not Israel in the verses 6 through 8. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. This is, by the way, what Israel fails to obtain in our text this morning in verse 7. They failed to attain that which they sought after, they were seeking, that is the righteousness of God. Why? Because they pursued a law. They did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is Christ. Then again in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness. And then in verse 21 of chapter 10, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and gainsaying or contradictory or contrary people. And so when he says in verse 7 of chapter 11, What then Israel failed to obtain that what is seeking, this is that Israel. This is that same, the one and the same Israel. And this is contrary or contrasting with the remnant. And so this is the majority of Israel. And then he says in verse 7, the elect obtained it. They obtained the righteousness of God, but the rest were hardened. Now it's important that we do not succumb to the spirit of the age, which is salvation through good intentions. That salvation can be wrought Whoever you are and whatever you believe, as long as your intentions are good and as long as you are sincere, salvation will come to you. There was no one more zealous, the apostle said, 
than he was for the law. In Philippians chapter 3. Zeal touching the law, he was untouchable. The righteousness that he gained according to the law, no one could come to his degree of perfection. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And yet all of that he counted as rubbish for the righteousness which comes by faith through Jesus Christ. That's the righteousness of God. There is a world of difference here. The apostle says that they were seekers. Notice that in verse 7. They were seekers of righteousness. They were seeking after righteousness, but they were ignorant in the way they sought for it. And they were ignorant in the way they went to have that righteousness as their own. They thought they could attain it through works. And some limit that attaining it through works, and as we'll see in verse 6, as merely the works of the law. And I don't think that's the apostle's point here. I think his point is that virtue and righteousness and seeking to be self-righteous and moral will never gain us entrance into heaven, into eternal life. It'll never save us from wrath. He said in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They were seeking to establish their own. That's how they were seeking. So even their seeking was not a seeking that was righteous. Why? Because they did not pursue righteousness by faith in Christ, but as it were, based on works. And he says that in chapter 9, verse 32, that is merit, their own righteousness. This is an unrighteous seeking because they were ignorant of the righteousness of God all the while. Therefore, their seeking was an implied effort of self-gratification and glorification. And this is what Jesus talked about when he saw the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Yes, they were zealous as they could be for the law. They even made uh, bulwarks beyond the law that would keep them from breaking the law. And then Jesus says, but when you do that, you make for yourselves the commandments of men that supersede the law. And in the end, in the final analysis, those who come to you for righteousness become twice the children of hell. Because they see that nobody can obtain the righteousness through the law, through the works of the law. They're just whitewashed tombs, and everybody who's seeking to establish your own righteousness through works are only and ever whitewashed tombs. Inside is full of dead men's bones with self-righteous people. You go along and you seek to please God and you seek to do righteously and so you seek to have God become a debtor to your righteousness all the while inwardly you were full of dead men's bones. You were unclean. You were full of sin. You were full of guilt. You need something to wash that away. But the Jews were in the most part unwilling to believe. They were not believing in Christ. The only means of righteousness. And so, he says, as it is written, that's not the end. It's not just that they are missing the mark here. That is, in contrast to the remnant, it's not that these unbelieving Israelites had just missed the mark 
It's that in verse 8, Paul applies this to them, the scriptures, and the, the scriptures are applied to them in ways that regard their hardening in their unbelief. It's important for us to realize, and I don't know if I've told you this, but Paul references in chapters 9 through the end of chapter 11 of Romans, one-third of all his references of the Old Testament and all of his writings come in chapters 9 through 11, the end of chapter 11 in Romans. Paul is teaching what the New Testament has to say, what, what the Old Testament has to say as far as the revelation and the fulfillment aspect of it for us now. He's teaching us how to view the scriptures now that Christ has come. But look what he says. What does the scripture say as it is written? Well, he goes back from what he said at the end of verse 7, but the rest are hardened, and now he affirms that with scripture. He demonstrates that through scripture. First, God has judicially blinded and deafened Israel. He's blinded and deafened them to see or to believe and hear and understand the gospel. He's taking here, I think, from two different texts, Deuteronomy 29.3 and Isaiah 29.10. But he says here in verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor. And the word can be translated torpidity, can stupefaction, slumber, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. The idea is that they're so overwhelmed with things that they don't know up from down and left from right, spiritually speaking. They have no spiritual sense is what he means. And God gave this to them. He gave them over to it. Down to this very day can be applied to this very day, by the way. And this is what we still see to this very day by the majority of those who are of Israeli descent. But he quotes, in part, Isaiah 29.10. And Isaiah 29, in fact, verses 8 through 12, describe, I think, what that word stupor means very well. Go to Isaiah 29, verse 8. And this is God announcing a judgment upon his people. And we'll pick it up in verse 8. We could go further back. But listen to this picture. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating and awakes, and his hunger is not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint, and his thirst is not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Now this is what's amazing. Paul is applying this to unbelieving Israel. Unbelieving Israel is against the spiritual life that God brings to his people. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. Why? And here's where Paul quotes, I believe. For the Lord, Yahweh, has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, stupor, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. 
And the vision of all this has become to you like, a wor- like words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, and he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. You know, it's interesting when Jesus comes and begins his ministry in Mark chapter 4. He says to his disciples, who are Jews, who he called out to himself, he says, to you it is to know the kingdom and the mysteries of the kingdom. But for everyone else, I speak in parables, so that they may not, so that they hear and may not understand. Jesus said the very purpose for him coming was so that those who were in unbelief would not be brought to vision, but to hardness by the use of his parables. Paul alluded this, to this back in Romans 10, 16 as well. And John picks up these same words of Isaiah being fulfilled in the life of Jesus in John 12, 37 and 40. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now, there's somebody else in this same context in Romans who many signs were done before and he did not believe. And he was hardened. Remember him? Pharaoh? Remember I said God speaks in the same vein about Israel as he does about Pharaoh? And here we see in John 12, Jesus had done so many signs before them. It's remarkable. How many times do you read in the Gospels, Jesus performs a sign, and then they say, but we seek after a sign. Do a sign for us. Give us a sign that you're the Messiah. They And so he says here, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us? This is Isaiah 53.1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been, been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Israel's sin and resistance against God has been met Therefore, with God's hardening of them to the point of them having no spiritual sensations. This is a sober and an awful reality. Down to this very day. Secondly, though, he doesn't end there. He says something to the effect, I think he gets at to this, what the prophet Jeremiah says regarding the false prophets when they would cry to the people, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And I think that's the point of where he goes next. The sort of peace that every sinner needs is peace with God, and yet those who reject Christ reject peace with God, and no amount of earthly success or wealth or progress or power can substitute for that peace. This is a peace that passes all understanding. And so Paul makes reference to an imprecatory psalm, but it's a messianic psalm all the same. Psalm 69, he quotes that next in verses 22 and 23. And he does that in Romans 11.9. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And the table was a place, I believe, and there's much disagreement with what these, uh, what 
David and Paul mean by this table and what it means here. But I, I think most believe and most agree that the table was a place where God's gifts were to be enjoyed. Where God would give gifts and his people would enjoy them at the table. And not only themselves, but they would also congregate with others to enjoy that, those gifts together with their family and friends and even sojourners and strangers. And here the emphasis is on their own table. Such that this is a place, I think, in our mind where we have to imagine that they perceive that they are benefited. When they sit at their table, this is a place where benefits come to them. Where they are in a good state. And Paul says, it will become a snare and a trap for them. A place of stumbling and retribution for their sin against God. Now it's hard to know, does he mean by that, that that place of peace and serenity and benediction will be a place of violence and of war and of chaos? Or does he mean by that, that their hardening will come through their success? I think both are biblical, by the way. I think to the unbeliever, when they see success, they say, oh, look how good I am. Look how safe I am in the ways of God. I even think God hardened Pharaoh that way. Remember, Pharaoh is king the whole time those plagues are coming upon him and his people. He's still king out of nine out of ten of those plagues. Hey, he still retains his power and his authority and all of those, that kingdom. And God says, I'm going to raise you up, which in Hebrew means I'm going to keep you where you're at so as to harden you even there. Success can harden, harden unbelievers. You better believe it. How can a rich man enter the kingdom of God? It's harder for him to enter the kingdom of God than to put a, the eye of a needle, a camel through an eye of a needle. It's impossible, humanly speaking, in other words. But with God, all things are possible. Thank God, because all Americans are wealthy, relatively speaking. But so also does God harden when the unrighteous and those who believe they belong to God come into trial. They come into trial and it's, what's this? I thought, I thought we were good, you and me, you know? God didn't treat me well, so you've heard, I've heard people say that. I did all these good things for God, and look at what he's given me, and I'm gone. Woe to those who, when trials come, fall away. It's hard not to think of the parable of the sower, isn't it? He goes out and he sows the seed, on, and they fall on four different types of soil. And on two of those soils, one of them grows up quick. Everything's nice. Hey, look, it's sunny weather. It's beautiful. And then the heat comes and there's no root. And it withers away and dies. One of them, the birds of the air comes and takes it away. And one falls on hard soil. And, and the point of that parable, I think, that there's only one that remains. The one that falls on good soil. The one that gets that root. And the one that gets the sun. That's the one that remains. But here is a place that their table where they presume good will come and they presume if they have it, they're okay. If they presume hardship comes, it's a stumbling block. I think that's his point. I think that's his point. They just don't have a means of getting to the truth. Everything is a hindrance to them in life. He says it even stronger in verse 10. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see 
and bend their backs forever. And I don't know exactly what he means by bend their backs forever, but it is very hard to see this most awful picture of servitude to sin. Servitude, perhaps even to the condemnation of the law, which they're seeking, by which they're seeking to attain their righteousness. And their backs are bent, and there's no freedom, and there's no hope. And where they view in their history that we have never been slaves to anyone, as they tell Jesus, we're not in bondage to anyone, and Jesus says, you're of your father, the devil. That is a bondage that is worth weeping over. Turn back to verses 5 and 6 now. The position of Israel, spiritually speaking, to this day has not changed. Jesus said this as well. Paul is making it clear that this has happened in accordance with God's plan and in agreement with his word. His word doesn't fail. But turn back with me to verses 5 through 7. And this is the second point. Grace alone makes the difference. The Holy Spirit has spoken clearly and consistently since chapter 9 regarding the grounds and hope of the sinner's salvation. Chapter 9, verse 6. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, 11. Though they, that is Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Verses 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Whomever he wills. And so it is not surprising that Paul puts verse 6 between his connecting arguments about the remnant of Israel in verses 1 through 5 and the majority of Israel who are judicially hardened in verses 7 through 10. It's not surprising, but we need to read it. Verse 6. I'm going to start in verse 5. So too at this present time there is a remnant chosen, how? By grace. But if it be of works, I'm sorry, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, there are some manuscripts, there are few manuscripts, but some have the, this portion as well. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. And that's just explanatory, the other side of the coin of, coin of what he says at the beginning of verse 6. Very few manuscripts have that at the end of verse 6, which is why most translations do not contain it. Although some do have that portion, and it does not contradict with the first half of that verse, but it does not add anything as well to the first half of that verse. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. Again, who obtained it? The elect, but the rest were hardened. 
Beloved, Paul's point is clear. The reason why there is an elect remnant of Israel being saved at all is due only and finally and ultimately to the sovereign and free grace of God, who foreknew and chose them unto salvation. For the rest, they have failed to attain salvation through God's righteousness, yes, because they didn't believe the gospel and ignorantly tried to attain it by works, but fundamentally, this too falls out according to the plan of God, even as he foretold it in the Old Testament scriptures. He did not show grace to all in the same way, is Paul's point. And so we cannot overlook what Paul says in verse 6 about the grounds of salvation. It not only informs how God has dealt with Israel and continues to deal with them now, but also how he deals with everybody regarding salvation. Because salvation is not only for the Jew but also for the Gentiles in this same way. Chapter 9, 22 through 33, chapter 10, 4 through 13, say this exact thing, namely that salvation is by grace alone. Go to verse 6. But if, the, but if it, but if it, that is the elect, the elect verse 5, the election spoken of there is by grace it is no longer, and this no longer does not speak temporally. That not, it's, he's not saying that at one time the, the elect were chosen by works, by their works. That's not what he's saying. He's speaking logically in relationship to the flow of his argument. He's saying, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Logically speaking, if it's by grace, it cannot be by works, is what he's saying. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul is concerned about what makes up the basis or the grounds for election for God's choosing of sinners for salvation. Let me say that again. He is concerned about what makes up the basis or the grounds of, of, for election or God's choosing of sinners for salvation. What is it? Did God see something in you? Your works? Remember what he said back in chapter 11? Romans 9, before the children had been born, before they had done good or evil, he chose the younger, he chose the older to serve the younger. The next verse is he says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Before he saw them do anything good or evil, the distinguishing factor, his purpose according to election is what stands. Grace represents God's freedom and power to, to bestow salvation. Listen to this. As a gift. As a gift. Not according to merit. Not according to God being in debt to grant us salvation. Works represents, from one perspective, what sinners merit by God, and by another perspective, what God then owes to sinners. You see, if election is according to God seeing something good in us, he owes us election. He owes us salvation. 
And that is completely contrary to what everything Paul has said in the entire portion even leading up to Romans 9 through 11 because what is our boast in as Christians? What is our boast in? It's in the Lord. It's only in the Lord. You see, the defining feature between you and your neighbor who is an unbeliever at this point, he may be a believer. We pray for him to become a believer. But the final distinction is not your goodness. It's not your righteousness. It's not your merit. It's not your intellect. It's not your skill. It's not your ability. And some of us are so thankful it's not those things because we are the least of all. And I mean it. We don't deserve the goodness of God. Not one of us. You see, this is why it matters that we get how God deals with Israel because he says this is how he deals with everyone. This same way. The reason why all glory goes to God and salvation is because no one would be saved if it weren't for God and his freedom and his will and his love and his purposes to save anyone. We would all be lost, every one of us. Not only does this not induce in us a self-pride, it tears it and strips it away. As Spurgeon wrote in this little tiny book, our salvation is all of grace. Grace alone. Be warned and beware then, children, young people, adults. Never imagine that God is in debt to you to do you good because of your own merit. Because of what you have done. It is not of what we have done. It is not works of righteousness that we have done. It's the grace of God. Which by grace we have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God. It's not of our own doing. The whole of it is a gift. Not of works lest any man should boast. So be warned and beware never to think of God as being any, under any obligation to save us because of our own right to be saved. How do we know if we've been elected in this way? Some people say this sort of teaching bars the way of assurance because everything is in God's hands. And I would say this is the only way of assurance is that everything is in God's hands. You know, I lived for a long time believing that I got myself into God's hands and I could get myself out of him. I was taught that I couldn't get myself out of him. I was taught, no, no, you, you, you are the one who gets yourself in there. Finally, it's up to you. But, but God is the one who keeps you. But it contradicted with everything I'd been taught about my supreme will. I, it's my will. I have to have the ability to get in and to get out. Otherwise, it's constraint, my salvation. And I remember trembling in my truck one night because I, I knew I was a sinner every second undeserving. My best works, my best deeds 
We're always soiled by unrighteousness. And I'm supposed to maintain my own salvation? It's all by grace. It's all by grace. But grace is the influence from beginning to end in our salvation that keeps us, that gives us the gift of faith, that keeps us in that faith, that perseveres in us, that causes us when we stumble to get back up and to seek Christ through it. When we sin to confess our sins, to boast only in the Lord and only in the Lord whether good or ill prevails in this life. It's only by grace. How do we know if we've been elected? Grace brings sinners to God through Jesus Christ. That's how we know. The fruit of electing grace, as we've seen already in Romans 10.4, is that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so I ask you this question. Do you trust in your own works or do you trust in Christ? That's the first question. Do you trust in Christ alone or your, can your works add Can you prevail upon God by your own doing or your own righteousness? That is a distinguishing question whether you are in the faith or not, whether you are elect or not, whether you've been chosen by grace. If you say Christ, that is the first answer. But he goes on to say that's the grounds. And here's how it's expressed, Romans 10, 9 through 13, that is, if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one, is, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is how you know you're elect, is that your all, your hope, your, your, your boast is only in God through Jesus Christ. That's it. If that's not only the answer of your mouth, but if that is especially the answer of your heart, you know that you belong in the beloved. And God will not cast you out. Let's pray. Father, as we learn these things about Israel, we're learning them about ourselves. If we have hope, it's only because of your grace. It's only because of you. Yes, we believe. Yes, we abide in the vine. Yes, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You keep your people. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of our doing, not in the beginning, not in the middle, and not at the end of of our lives. It's all of grace through Jesus Christ for the glory of your name. And so I pray as we read uh, these texts, as we're learning about what you are doing, even in Israel and in the church and in the future for Israel, that we would be in awe of your wisdom, that we would be silenced by it, humbled by it, that we would be only led to admire you in the way that Paul leads us at the end of chapter 11 when he exclaims how glorious you are. I pray that as we come to your table now that you've spread before us, that you provided for us the blood of your son and the body of your son represented here, 
that you would be with us, that we would be sanctified by the truth of the word that comes to us through the observance of this sacrament, of this holy ordinance. Be glorified, Lord, sanctify us now, we pray in Christ's name, amen.